Hello and welcome to Insight. This week, the challenges of farming the high country. High country farming is a way of life that some say is the backbone of New Zealand. But with changing land use and environmental pressures, how will this low-intensity form of farming fare in the future? Some farmers want to preserve the way of life and keep it in the family, but others have been buying up the land they'd always leased from the Crown and are selling it off for a huge profit, leading to smaller family farms and bigger corporate operations. When the land on sells, it sells for about 493 times what the Crown sold it for on average. But the Crown is questioning those figures. Over 25 years, there's going to be significant land increases. Um, is it comparing the actual price that we paid with you know, what's been subdivided or sold on since? Tucked between the Kaikoura Ranges and straddling the Clarence Valley is Muzzle Station. A mixture of river plains, steep craggy mountainsides, rocky creek beds and tussock hilltops, it's New Zealand's most isolated mainland farm. Bought by Colin and Tina Nimmo in 1980, they spent over a decade negotiating the tenure review process and planned to hold on to the farm for many years to come. But Colin Nimmo's worried that traditional high country farming is slipping out of the hands of New Zealand families. The saddest thing about the high country probably is that the way of life is disappearing. Tenure reviews, just shrinking the properties and making them more intensive. So the founding sort of way that New Zealand was set up as a pastoral extensive grazing system, the only place left of that was in the high country and even that is disappearing, which is pretty sad and that's what needs to be preserved. It's the way of life that needs to be preserved. I'm Alexa Cook and on this insight I take up the reins for Muzzle Station's annual calf weaning muster to find out more about the way of life and what challenges high country farmers are facing. Colin and Tina Nimmo still own Muzzle Station but three years ago they handed the management of it over to their youngest daughter Fiona Redfern and her husband Guy. In comes mainly 60-70% uh, beef. Sheep, meat and wool was the next biggest thing. And then uh, we've got a decent-sized honey operation as well that my sister-in-law and brother-in-law run that we share on a 50-50 basis. Yeah, we're lucky we're pretty reasonably diverse with sort of yeah, beef, lambs, merino wool and honey. The farm has a contract with New Zealand Merino who buy their wool and then find the best market for it. Muzzle Station runs about 5,500 Merino sheep. It also has 2,000 cattle and one of the biggest jobs every year is the calf weaning muster. It's the first day of the muster, and we're starting on the northern boundary of Muzzle Station. It takes about four days to get the 650 Hereford cattle and their calves in, and then it takes about another week to wean the calves, pregnancy scan the cows and TB test. After the yard work is done, the calves and cull cows are driven back to the homestead. Getting the cattle and their calves down from the gnarly mountainsides and into the yards takes a lot of skill, and Guy has a team of five locals with dogs and horses helping out. The station has a yearly rainfall of just 550 millimetres, and riding through the valley, it's clear that the past two years have been particularly dry. Mr Redfern says the weather has taken its toll on his breeding cows and he's expecting a lower pregnancy rate. Sort of vary between the sort of 6 to 10% dry. Yeah, so but this year I'm 
expecting very few more drives just because we've had two years of drought, really. I think it's taken their toll. Can it impact quite a bit on their pregnancy rates? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, just the cows are in a bit lighter condition when they went to the ball. What about their condition? Is this what they usually look like? Yeah, um, usually are better. The cal- I'm pretty happy with the calves. The calves have been looked after. They look all right. There's some of the calves are a bit lighter, but they're not too bad overall, though. I'm happy enough. His father-in-law, Colin Nimmo, says in the nearly 40 years of farming the station, the weather has noticeably changed. It's a lot more variable now. There's a lot bigger variations. It was a lot more stable back then. I suppose that's, that's climate change. It's not global warming because I don't think it's getting any warmer. Although in saying that, we've had two or three winters now, just recently in a row, that you could drive over the range. And in 35 years, you could never do that. So the weather, you think, has just become more unreliable in this sense? Yeah, just... Unstable, well, yeah, very, it varies. There's not the seasonal definitions that there were. Probably. And does that make it harder for farming? It does make it harder out there because, well, access-wise, you need good weather. It either needs to be dry enough to drive or good enough to fly. Yeah, it's a funny problem that most people go to town when the, on the shitty day. We have to do everything on a good day. So if you want to go flying and do some work around the station, it's got to be a good day. If you want to go to town, it's got to be a good day. The Nimmo's bought the 18,000 hectare station from the Murray family, who subdivided it off the original bluff station and sold it, along with the historic Cobb Cottage, Woolshed and farm buildings. Back then it was all leased from the Crown, but Colin and Tina Nimmo spent about 12 years working through the tenure review process. They now own 8,000 hectares and have a 33-year lease on another 8,000 hectares of the Clarence Reserve. Guy Redfern says the families ended up with about the same amount of grazing land. When Colin and Tina did the tin review on muzzle, they are pretty fortunate they got a reasonably good deal. Basics gave up shingle and things, so at the same time they managed to get a, a 30-year lease on the Clarence Reserve property, which were about seven or eight years into. Obviously we've got a, the track over there, which is our track to Kaikoura. We've got easement through it, but the public can uh, walk through and mountain bike, horse trek onto the Clarence Reserve any time. They're right, it's just more we have trouble with sort of hunters and things with vehicle access, people wanting to get in. Yeah, there is certainly issues with coming through some dock land, but we certainly don't say no to anybody. It just has to fit around uh, farming practices. So you have quite a few people that request to come in here for hunting? Oh, yeah, a lot, yeah, heaps. I mean, we're actually uh, Tina and Colin are running that side of it for us because otherwise our phone would just wouldn't get any peace and quiet. So um, they have put up with it, unfortunately, but, yeah, so it's quite a lot of demand. And is that a thing that you just open your doors to these people or they pay like a fee? Yeah, no, there is a, a road maintenance fee because we, it cost us, geez, I mean, some years it can be, uh, well, this year it was probably 70000 I think, just to fix the road. So, yeah, we charge a small fee for road maintenance. Land Information New Zealand manages nearly 1.4 million hectares of South Island high country. Tenure review is when the Crown negotiates with farmers who are leasing its land over what it should sell to them and what it should keep for conservation. Since it was formalised into law in 1998, Land Information New Zealand has been managing this process on behalf of the Commissioner of Crown Lands to release the land from pastoral lease into freehold or into full Crown ownership, usually as conservation land. The process is voluntary for farmers and since it began, the department has completed 119 reviews of the leases on its high country land. Through this, nearly 330,000 hectares of high country has been freeholded, and about 293,000 hectares taken back by the Crown. 
Anne Brower is a senior lecturer of environmental management at Lincoln University and chairs the New Zealand Committee of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. She spent the past 10 years closely following the tenure review process. I ended up getting the transactions prices through the minister's office and what I found out, much to my surprise, was that the Crown had actually lost money. So the Crown's been selling land, buying rights to some land for conservation, but selling more land than it buys and in the process has lost millions of dollars, which was quite a surprise because freehold is worth more than leasehold because owning is more valuable than renting land and lower altitude land is more valuable than higher altitude land, and more land is more valuable than less land. So for all three of those reasons, basic economics would have predicted that the crown would make money, but instead it's lost um, about $60 million so far. And when that land gets unsold, how much does it make them when those farmers decide, right, we now own this land, we don't need as much of it anymore, we're going to sell some of it? When the land on sells, it sells for about 493 times what the Crown sold it for on average. Um, So of that 400,000 hectares that have been freeholded or privatized, about 75,000 hectares have been on sold for $250 million. So a fraction of what the Crown sold in total for $11 million has later on sold for $250 million. Anne Brower says because Land Information New Zealand couldn't give her figures on the value of the land, she calculated the farmer's profits through data from quotable value. Land Information New Zealand gets its advice on high country land ownership from the Department of Conservation, Regional Councils and Iwi. Its Deputy Chief Executive of Crown Lands, Jerome Shepherd, says it doesn't calculate what the land makes once it leaves Crown ownership. And over 25 years, there would have been significant land value increases. He says the land being sold to farmers is carefully valued. He is a registered valuer in all our negotiations. Experienced um, ends up as a negotiated process. And does that take into account things like then changing the way the land's used, um, perhaps intensifying it more, subdividing off bits for property? The economic part of the freehold part of the property is very much that. It's what is the you know what is the realizable value of that asset. They, like everybody else, can go on and develop that land. They put money into that development, so that there's a cost to that as well for the owner. In April, the Environment Court recommended a moratorium on tenure reviews so a comprehensive all-station review can be done. Lincoln University's Anne Brower wants the tenure review process stopped. It's an amazing thing for a government to sell valuable land and lose money. I mean, the sort of ethics of selling quite beautiful land is one thing, um, but losing money while you're doing it, that's just out of this world, really. When you weigh up having having it as farmland or having it as conservation land, what are the pros and cons there? At present, New Zealand takes quite a black and white view of land ownership. So it's either private or it's public. And the only form or the most prominent form of public ownership that we really see is conservation land. There are lots of different property arrangements that you could negotiate. You don't have to divide up the landscape in order to create a different mix of land uses. Before the government began the process of reviewing leases and selling land, New Zealand had 303 Crown pastoral leases. 
To date, 119 have had their leases reviewed, 48 are in the process, five have been whole property purchases, and 131 high country farms have not been reviewed. Jerome Shepherd stands behind the process continuing. One of the key things that it has done is preserved a lot of land that was previously farmed and put it into the conservation estate because they are the iconic parts of New Zealand that are driving a lot of our tourist numbers and the economic um, engine room around tourism. So it's really important that we get that right. We rely on the key advisors, which are the Department of Conservation and others, to provide where those areas of significant um, value. A lot of the area we have provided public access through um, the freehold land as well, through easements or covenants. And Anne Brower wants the process stopped. What do you think about that? We'll continue on with the process. I mean, there's always opportunities to make it better. We're always welcome to hear ideas of how we can improve our process. But Ms Brower argues that it's a confusing and convoluted process which baffles everyone. There's always this great confusion and in the end I have to say, well, if you're confused by this, if you don't understand it, or if you think that you don't understand tenure review, then it means you understand perfectly because it doesn't make sense. What happens when you go to Lynn's and and you go to the Crown about this and say, hey, what's going on? What kind of responses have you got? Just a whole lot of syllables that don't really go together. And often when somebody throws a whole lot of syllables in front of something, it's usually to hide a lack of substance. For those working the land, farming in such an isolated place has many challenges. The only road in is a two and a half hour journey over the nearly 1,400 metre high Seawood Kaikoura range and across the Clarence River. And it's only usable if it hasn't snowed or rained. The Nimmo and Redfern families use a small plane to get in and out of the station and because of the steep and fragile landscape, the stockwork is done on horseback, by foot and with a Robinson 44 helicopter. Colin and Tina Nimmo brought up their two daughters, Fiona and Lucy, on the farm, homeschooling them before they were sent to boarding school. Tina says it was a pioneering sort of lifestyle. We lived on rabbits at one stage and salami, well, I was told someone, salami keeps without a fridge. Rabbits, there was millions of them. We didn't eat a lot of meat probably at times. It's amazing what you find out there that you can eat. Yeah, lots of goats. Little goats. In the days of wild cattle, there were lots of wild cattle out there. And... Most people had got past the pioneering primitive sort of stuff that we went into. Most people were quite civilised. Several years ago, the couple made the hard decision to move closer to town and leave the managing of the farm to their daughter Fiona and her husband Guy, who have two young children, Arthur, who's four, and Matilda, who's two. We could either get carried out of there in a box and the last few years weren't going to be too much fun or we got out when we could still do something. And we had the farm here on the inland road and someone needed to run it. That was pretty obvious in the end. I mean, we were rattling around in a big house with, with no nobody there anymore sort of thing, really, and they were in a small house with two children. And Do you miss it? Oh, yeah. It is good to go back there and, yeah, we'll take a bit of uh, extracting those memories. I said I left my soul out there. The Nimmos don't have a formal succession plan for the farm, but there was no question that their daughter Fiona would end up working the same land she grew up on. My dad asked me one day when I was planning on, no, that I had to decide what I wanted to do in the next 10 years because they needed to sort of plan what they wanted to do. So, and my sister was never, she was quite happy to come back, but she didn't ever want to actually live here. So I always knew I would come back.
there was probably never any doubt at all in my mind. You don't sort of get allured into a different lifestyle when you're overseas or studying? Oh, temporarily maybe, but I always knew I'd come back in the end. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's really important that it stays in the family too. If, if a place like this gets sold, that's it, because no normal Kiwi can buy it. What kind of challenges do you face trying to raise a family out here? For me, the main challenge is the lack of socialisation and the lack of things like learning to swim, learning sports and just playing with other kids that everybody else takes for granted. Mrs Redfern says there was one time when the isolation of the farm really scared her. My appendix started to uh, leak when I was 33 weeks pregnant with Matilda. And so that's the only time we've ever had to call up the rescue helicopter. That was in the middle of the night. I reckon it was about the only time that I really didn't want to be here. With the couple having a young family to take care of, it's decided Fiona will stay home during this year's muster. Before they head off, she helps Guy get a plan in place and they pack the supplies that will help get the musterers through the next 10 days. Our first ride is 25 kilometres out to the ravine hut, where the musterers will spend the next two weeks working the cattle into the yards for testing and calf weaning. The last year at calf market, the year before it blew, thought the bloody hut was going to go. <laughs> One of the shepherds on the job is 68-year-old Rick Denton, who's been mustering and hunting on Muzzle Station for over 30 years. Sort of gets in your blood, these sort of places. It shouldn't be probably coming, but... You just keep coming back. It'll be a time where I won't be able to, but while I can, I will. It's all just part of life. You just do it because you love it. Mightn't get bloody rich doing it, but you meet a lot of real good people. What's your favourite thing about it all? Oh, just the country and the people. And it's rewarding watching all these young ones that are coming through. They really stepped up and they all got real good teams of dogs and I just jog along behind <laughs> trying to keep out the road unless something major goes wrong with me I'll be, keep coming back Bye. A more recent addition to the annual muster is 25 year old Abby Rowe from Cheviot She has a postgraduate degree in engineering geology but having grown up on a farm Abby decided that that was where her heart was my dad at the time just didn't want me to sort of give up working with my degree to throw it away for something I wasn't sure about. But once he knew that I was committed and that I enjoyed my dogs and he saw photos of me walking along big ridges in the high country and once he saw how happy I was, I think that made him a bit more pleased. But my parents have always said to us that they will be happy if we're happy. And your friends, were they just a bit like, what are you doing? Oh, <laughs> they're probably the worst because my uni friends think, why have you given up? You're so good at what you do, did at uni. How could you give that up to go on such a minimum wage? But it's the lifestyle. I mean, work never feels like work. It's not work when you're riding along a ridgeline looking at the mountains and you've got your dogs there and, and you're getting paid to do it. That beats sitting in an office chair for 40 hours a week, that's for sure. How hard is it to get work? I think being a female, it does make it a bit harder, but people now are generally getting better at accepting females. We do sometimes lack in the strength department, but we generally can make up for it in other ways. Abby Rose sees the muzzle station muster as a two-week working holiday. Her regular job is as a shepherd at a sheep and beef station further south in Cheviot. The number of women in farming is steadily increasing, but Abby says there has been the odd sexist comment 
which she usually ignores, except for one which is stuck in her mind. It was just when I was starting out shepherding and he'd never employed a female in his life. And I was sort of explaining to him what sort of ideal job I would like. He goes, let's be honest, if you want to go up from being a shepherd to being more of a manager, how is you having a family and having children going to fit into that? Realistically, you're not going to be able to do it, so why start? I'll never forget it. I think it made me more determined to stick it out and see where it takes me. One of the jobs on the muster is TB testing. Because Muzzle Station has tuberculosis in its Hereford cattle, they can't be sold either at auction via the sale yards or privately to other farmers. Instead, the calves have to be fattened up and finished on the farm until at least two years of age before being sent to the freezing works. Farmers and agricultural authorities have been battling the chronic disease since the 1950s. TB is mainly spread by possums and can cause serious production losses in cattle and deer because it attacks the animal's organs. Guy Redfern says it's been a real headache for the station. It creates a lot more work for us in here. Like ideally, if we didn't have TB, we'd probably go more, more cows and selling calves or something probably. Because cows just have a lot easier to winter, opposed to young cattle, which we've got on sort of crops and things now, and it's just a lot more work involved in that. And it's a bit tricky in here because uh, well, no contractors will want to come in to make hay and things like that, so we have to do a lot of this. Of it ourselves, and uh, it's all hassle of feeding it out too. We've got a river in the middle of the property, and tracks are pretty average, so uh, we try to avoid it. But it's been pretty tough the last two years, have been extremely dry. Ideally, we would like to sell those stock store, especially while the price is so high. Yes, but Gutty not be able to sell stock really. Osprey was formed in 2013 when the biosecurity agencies, the Animal Health Board, and NATE merged together, and it's in charge of New Zealand's TB free program. Ten years ago, all of these, the coloured areas, would have been that brown colour. That would be the extent of the large problem areas. Kevin so Cruz is Osprey's national disease manager and says at its peak in the mid-1990s, there were 1,700 TB-infected herds. But because of the TB-free programme, the disease is now only in 50 herds across the country. He says TB is bad news for trade. Even though it's a different strain, it is a problem that people see in humans. It is a horrible, horrible disease to have. So any connotation of that with consumer products is not a good thing for, I guess, our reputation for as a trading country. Before the 1980s, TB wasn't a priority for the government. But when the disease got out of hand, the industry pushed for more action. And this was the start of a national strategy. Historic data shows that the disease was first found on Muzzle Station in the Clarence and Amuri catchments. We've actually got a, a TB testing record, I think, from 1964. There's been TB in domestic animals there from that far back, you know, 40, 50 years. So you're and, saying it might be one of the first ones in New Yeah, 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 and that's what we got from the, the 60s, early 70s. And from there, basically the problem radiated out. Mainly it appears down the major river catchments from the northern South Island. From there, you know, the Wairau. Our tree, um, Clarence, Wyow, um, who and who and those sort of, and it sort of radiated out of there until we basically, you know, got in front of it. But that took until about the mid two thousands. This year, just one cattle beast on Muzzle Station tested positive for the disease, and Guy Redfern is pleased with the TB free program because it's made a difference to some of the financial losses from having a positive test. We're lucky now; we get fully compensated for any TB reactors whereas in the past we were only getting 60% of their value. Not being able to sell store is the biggest thing. 
Osprey's ultimate goal is for New Zealand to be completely free of TB by 2055. To get there, Kevin Cruz says the aim is for domestic livestock herds to be cleared of TB by 2026 and out of possums by 2040. What we can provide muzzle and some of the neighbouring properties, we can now give them some light at the end of the tunnel. So basically we now have an end point that we have to get their herds clear. To enable that we've got to put in really intensive management, far more than we've ever done before, you know, with their herd, but also provide them relief for wildlife problems. So prior to now, because it was a landlocked property, a single infected herd affecting them, but not having a wider effect on the strategy, they were left like a holding pattern. But Mm. now there'll be a plan for active management to get them clear. On such an isolated farm, even the smallest job can be a logistical nightmare. The road in isn't safe or wide enough for stock trucks, and usually during winter the only way in and out is by plane. The wool used to be taken out on an old army unimog, but now a small truck carries everything from wool and lambs to drums of fuel, water tanks and fencing supplies. Several times a year, the culled cows are walked out on foot to Nimmo's farm in Kaikoda before being sold to the freezing works. Since Fiona and Guy moved to the station 10 years ago, there's been several changes, including a small irrigation system. About 30 hectares that we're developing, breaking in a new country, so it's got some winter crops in at the stage. So what kind of stuff would you be planting in there this year? Rape and uh, all your brassicas and some Italians and things like that at the stage and then we're just sowing down sort of more drought tolerant permanent pastures, coxfoot and clovers and lucerne, yeah. And how does your irrigation system work? Uh, it's just a K line but it's gravity fed so there's obviously no pumps and things so apart from shifting it, it's pretty low cost. So it just takes water out of a stream, does it? That... Just a side creek that feeds into the clearance. Water quality is a hot topic and the government's new clean water package is proposing to exclude stock from waterways, including on high country farms, on a staggered basis from later this year through to 2030. The Ministry for the Environment says the proposals recognise that for some landowners, which may include some high country farmers, significant practical constraints could stop them from meeting the new requirements. Muzzle Station has low numbers of stock grazing on its 18,000 hectares, And Guy Redfern says if they had to fence the Clarence River and tributaries, it would make farming there pretty much unviable. Geez, it would be in the millions of dollars to fence all our waterways. And then you'd have to get some sort of water scheme. You'd see one that's 100% reliable without having to check daily. And um, it would force us to totally change our... I don't know what we'd do. We wouldn't be able to run cattle probably. But we're very fortunate our river's one of the cleanest rivers in the country anyway at the stage. So it would just be pointless having to fence it off. So hopefully it doesn't come to that bit of a concern anyway what is happening out there. Certainly, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it on intensive properties and things. It's be a sure a good idea, but as soon as you get to more extensive properties, it's just unfeasible, really. His wife Fiona is worried that that day is looming. It's a ticking time bomb. It will happen, I suppose. I don't know what will happen, but I will wait and see. I guess because there isn't a problem up here, it's not going to be at the forefront of any action, but it'll still fall into the requirements, some of it. So in theory, we are going to have to fence off some of it. Not sure how we'll do that, but we want it clean and swimmable and drinkable too. Lincoln University's Anne Brower says going forward, the government needs to take a good hard look at what is happening to the high country. 
if these landscapes and the people associated with these landscapes are something that is quite core to the national identity and if it is something that we want to keep, then we should think quite hard about ways that we can go about keeping them. I don't think that dividing up the land is the way to keep that high country way of life. I'm Alexa Cook and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. That programme was produced by me, Teresa Cowie, with technical production by Phil Benge. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, head to rnz.co.nz slash insight or listen, rate, review and subscribe to Insight on iTunes. Ka kite anō.